Hello, and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. Later on today's show, a fascinating conversation with former Israeli National Security Advisor and senior Mossad official Uzi Arad. But before that, Israel is going to the polls again, with an election expected to take place this fall, after Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and Foreign Minister Yair Lapid surprised the country and announced they are dissolving their own government. What caused this dramatic decision? Who will benefit from it? And when will Israel's endless cycle of elections end? All that up next. For the fifth time in two and a half years, Israel is almost certainly going to another round of elections. I can't believe we're recording this podcast, <laughs> but it's happening. I, I'm Amir Tibon. Alison Kaplan-Sommer. And with us in studio. Angel Pfeffer. And why can't you believe it? <sighs> why can't I believe it? You know, it's, it's not even the question of whether one likes or dislikes the outgoing Bennett-Lapid government. Uh, but doesn't the thought of another round of election, Anshil, fill you with at least some exasperation? I'm filled with joy. And He said sarcastically. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, uh, clearly, uh, Alison, describe the look at my face. <laughs> big, big smile. Alison, what about you? Um, well, it's something that we kind of knew was coming. It was a question of whether we wanted the slow version of Chinese water torture of, you know, are we waiting every week? Will there be a vote to dissolve the government? Uh, what's going to happen? And, uh, you know, in a way, it's a relief because we don't have to keep waiting for it. it. It's thrust upon us. Yeah, I think that's what Naftali Bennett probably felt last night as well. I feel like some kind of weight just dropped off his shoulders when he said, OK, I'm not going to let these small defectors from my party torment me. I'm going to blow it up myself. Well, someone who saw him literally seconds after he gave his uh, his statement last night together with Yair Lapid said that he seemed a lot uh, a lot happier than he'd seen for, for, for quite, a, quite a while. So we are recording this podcast on Tuesday here at Haaretz Studios in Tel Aviv. And uh, by the time you listeners will hear it, perhaps other things will happen. But the picture we are seeing right now is basically that a vote to dissolve the Israeli Knesset and lead to new elections is scheduled to take place on Wednesday. And there is some disagreement between the outgoing government and the Netanyahu-led opposition on how fast uh, the legislation will move in the Knesset because maybe Netanyahu thinks he has a chance to form a government without going to elections. Anshil, does that even seem like a real scenario? Well, he, he would need uh, seven more uh, votes uh, to do that. He's got probably two or three votes from Bennett's Yamina party, but he would need also votes to come from elsewhere within the coalition. The only place realistically would be uh, Gidon Saar's New Hope party. Everything we're hearing from Saar and the members of that party is that they're sticking to their anti-Netanyahu line. So it's, it's, it's really very difficult to see that happening. Uh, I think that Netanyahu is also... very much aware that even if he does somehow manage to cobble together 61 votes, it will be a very unstable coalition where he'll be, he'll be at the mercy of a number of its members. And I, don't th I, th I think he, he prefers have another throw of the dice and, uh, and go for elections as well. Has he burned the bridge called uh, Benny Gantz? Because there were a lot of rumors that uh, they were trying to win Gantz's party over to their side in order to uh, form an alternative government. Well, Gantz has also made it very clear, at least until Gantz heard, uh, along with the other party leaders of the coalition yesterday afternoon, about Bennett's plan. He made it very clear until, I think, Monday morning that he's not 
he's not part of any plans with Netanyahu. And I think that Netanyahu himself would probably agree to that, but even Netanyahu can't do everything. And in within Likud, there's a lot of anger still towards Benny Gantz from the period of the short, the short-lived coalition government last year. I think that uh, it's not. Uh, I don't think it's on the cards. I, think, I don't think Netanyahu can make that happen. I think Gantz is is aware that that will uh, cause major damage to him with his own voters. Don't think that's going to happen. So I want to ask both of you: Where were you um, yesterday evening? Uh, was it around I think six thirty p.m. when this bombshell of a statement from Prime Minister Bennett and Foreign Minister Lapid came out, in which they announced that they are going to dissolve the Knesset and initiate an election? And then, who was the first person you called <laughs> to talk about it? Alison. Um, I was having coffee with a friend, trying to be tuned out of the news and not pay attention to my phone. And I kept receiving urgent phone calls from uh, outlets overseas who wanted my commentary on the political crisis going on. And I said, oh, you know, it's old. They want to know, will Nir Orbach leave? One, I was thinking of the old political crisis. I didn't realize anything new was happening until I, uh, I got home and I turned on the news. I realized uh, what was going on and suddenly I, I found out why they were chasing me. So I had to uh, call them back and uh, and apologize for not responding to them because I was trying to have coffee. I can't say who. I was on the phone with someone and I can't say who I made the next phone Ooh, call to. Ooh, a secret <laughs> No, but you know, it's the it's the normal live what you expect for, uh, of a journalist. I was talking to someone about a related matter when we were bo- when both me and the person I was talking to we received a text message uh, with Bennett uh, uh, and Lapid's joint statement, and the next phone call was to someone in in Bennett's circle, obviously, uh, to confirm that this, we weren't uh, what we were getting was uh, was indeed true. It, I don't think it, it was it was in any way a surprise. I think that it was looking back, it, it, it was the right thing for Bennett and Lapid to do to Why? try and to try and take control of the you know of. Of the narrative, I know that's a cliche, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who is seen as leading events. It would look bad for both of them to be dragged by the opposition, by Likud, by Netanyahu to the election. Much better for them to look as if they are the ones who, who at some degree have some kind of control over the events. And because the most important thing going into this election is finally we're going to have an actual clash between two main politicians. I mean... Lapid and and and, and uh, Netanyahu, neither of them can form a government on their own. Obviously, they both need a coalition. But it's now clear who the main contender is, and, and we haven't really had since 2015 with Bo- well, we had with Benny Gantz, but that also didn't really last very long. So we've got now a new set of uh, well, we've always had Netanyahu, but we've since we since yeah since any of us can remember since the beginning of this podcast for <laughs> sure. But this is the first time that Lapid is going up against uh, against uh, Netanyahu as as the leader of the bloc even though the other party leaders won't won't say as much uh, which is a problem for him so the the way in which Lapid is going to enter the prime minister's office next week the the way in which the transition is being handled by them is significant it is part of building up this new uh, image of Yair, prime minister Yair Lapid you know, I remember you and I had a conversation last late last night when you said when you said to me the, m- the most important thing for Lapid now is that as, as many Israelis hear the words Prime Minister Yair Lapid over and over again the, the next four months, and the manner in which it happens is very important. The fact that they are Bennett and Lapid are making a big show of how 
the transition is orderly and friendly and well well conducted and that in, they love each other and and a, a really uh, critically w w w wasn't that uh, uh, just before we get to the, to, the, to that mood which is really important where it was so in contrast to the way the transition last year was handled when Netanyahu wouldn't even do a transition he basically sat with with Bennett for 20 minutes and as Michal Hazutov our political correspondent reported they were shredding documents there this is there's going to be a very orderly transition of the next few days and as Addison said it's going to be also very friendly mm -hmm. and that you know it was important for them because there were lots of reports about how Bennett was trying perhaps to manipulate the coalition's downfall in a way that the left-wing MKs would do it and therefore he would remain interim prime minister the fact that that's not what's happening they're doing it they're they're calling each other mensch and a great and, and a great guy and lapid made a joke about how ben is actually younger than him and he's still got a, his future still ahead of him and so on you know that uh, i don't know how many voters it will sway i don't think there are that many voters to sway between the the bibi block and and what will be the lapid block but just by creating this image of lapid being a more consensual prime minister, someone who has has the support of other parties and someone who the job sort of fits him is going to be crucial in this election. And it will stress the message that over the past year, the government has functioned, that this was a functional government, that it got things done, and that the orderly transition of power is part of that story. Yeah, we, we do things. I, I want to ask you, Ellison, if we try to look at this, not just from the perspective of what happened yesterday and what will happen next week, but as a longer stretch of time. You know, at the end of 2018, Netanyahu's government with the Lieberman and the religious parties and Moshe Kachlon, if you remember that guy who used, right to be, used to be finance minister once, fell apart. We went to an election April of that year. Netanyahu couldn't form a government. Another election and another election. A short-lived Netanyahu Gantz government. It was, I think, eight months in power. And then this government, after a fourth election, Bennett and Lapid, one year in office. This is a major crisis in Israeli democracy. We, we, we are so into it uh, here at Haaretz and in generally people in the media. Uh, we look at the latest zigs and zags of, uh, you know, why the government fell apart, who won the narrative uh, fight. But there is something disturbing about the longer stretch and the bigger picture here. Right, because we have no stability and without some sort of stability in a government that can think in the long term, then we can't make long term plans for the, the country and the country can't really move forward. Everyone's talking about, um, you know, the failure of the experiment of having an Arab party in the coalition government. But as you say, from the long view, I'm wondering if, uh, you know, the country has tried everything. The government has tried everything. They, they could not get a majority behind one leader. And now twice, first with Netanyahu and Gantz, and now with uh, Lapid and, uh, and Bennett, there was an attempt for this buddy movie uh, government, you know, where you're going to have two guys at the top and then maybe they can hold together a majority. And I think if we have seen an experiment that's failed, it's the experiment that's failed twice to try to uh, solve the problem of one man not being able to get a majority behind him by having two men get a majority behind him. So maybe instead of having two prime ministers in every government, like the Netanyahu Gantz thing and now Bennett and Lapid, we, we should just have, after the next election, a government for four years with a different prime minister for every one of those years. Yeah, well, that'll four, help us think. Four prime ministers, Anshil, you like that? I could live with that. But th the problem is, is that also we've created this idea of what a prime minister has to look like. And it's centered around Netanyahu and everyone is trying to 
you know, as I, you know, as the f the phrase I used, the wannabes, those who want to look like Netanyahu, and Bennett and Lapid have spent the last ten years trying to look like Netanyahu and trying to measure up to Netanyahu. So we've now had a year in which is very interesting. Actually, you don't have to be Netanyahu to be prime minister, and that may turn out to be significant because I think the fact that. Israelis have got used to the fact that the words prime minister don't have to c be adjacent to the, the name Bibi Netanyahu could have some, uh, could have an effect. Once again, we're talking here about factors that we really can't measure at this point. It's still, it's the first election in which Netanyahu is not, uh, first election in, 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 in 15 years, in which Netanyahu is not going in as uh, as prime minister. That That's something that, well, we'll have to have to kind of recalibrate our expectations. But you know, to what Alison said about this inability of Israelis of Israel to to form a stable government, the two governments that we've had over the last two years, the short-lived, well, they're both short-lived, but the shorter mm -hmm. uh, Gantz Netanyahu uh, government and the slightly longer uh, uh, Bennett Lapid government, they were both created as a result of breaking promises. Benny Gantz broke his promise not to sit with Netanyahu and form the coalition with him. Naftali Bennett broke his promises not to sit with uh, Mansour Abbas uh, and the United Arab List and not to make Yair Lapid prime minister. He's now broken both those promises as well. We're, we're looking at a, a, the same situation whereby every party, not just the parties of Lapid and, uh, and, and Netanyahu, but every party is going here with a set of promises that someone will have to break their promise again in the... Uh, in, in the aftermath of the next election for a government to be formed the question really is is who is going to break their promise and who's going to who, who's going who's going to, who's going to uh, uh, get something out of that and i think right now if i had to bet on who will be the promise breaker of the, of the next post election it'll be netanyahu who is currently promising his followers his supporters that he's going to set up a, a national government and that Bengvir and smotrich and and the Haredim will, will be members and under no circumstances will he sit with mansour abbas i think that we'll see that that that, that, that there's a good chance that netanyahu on the day after the election we don't know what his options will be but he'll certainly be talking to everybody not just to his small group of parties he'll be, he'll be trying to get as many people to break their promises and he'll try to and he'll be breaking his own promises the question well. is will he be able to do what he wasn't able to do last time and that is to get ben gvir smotrich party to agree to sit in a government with a boss which is why he couldn't put together a coalition last time around although uh, i already saw this morning uh, again in the promises department that abbas is now promising he will not sit in a government with smotrich and ben gvir also complicating uh, two weeks ago he said that he said the i know opposite. i know i know yeah. um Ellison, if you are uh, in Joe Biden's team <laughs> in the White House, uh, do you still recommend coming here to Israel in three weeks for a visit when the country is going to be in the midst of a new election? Well, I don't think he has a choice with uh, midterms coming up and having to strengthen, you know, the commitment of the Democratic Party uh, towards Israel because many of the uh, the big donors and big supporters of the Democrats are uh, are still uh, pro-Israel. Um, there's no way he could cancel the visit, um, and I don't think he minds the idea of uh, visiting a uh, Prime Minister Yair Lapid. I think the big question is, um, so it doesn't look like he's campaigning on behalf of Lapid if he's going to be forced to also meet with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Well, in the past, every American president visiting has had a, a short meeting with the leader of the opposition. That, that's not really what dilutes the effect. But the real question is, is can it help? And we saw with Bill Clinton in 1996, he came here 
made a big fuss of, of hugging Shimon Peres and doing everything he could besides saying vote Peres to help him. And it didn't help Netanyahu would in the end in 96. I, so I don't think Biden is going, to make, is going to have that much of an effect. But as I said before, this is all part of the making Yair Lapid look prime ministerial. And there's nothing like hosting a U.S. president in Jerusalem to make someone look like a prime minister. Yeah, I think this is an important point because we remember the 1996 election. I was in school, but you guys probably have a better memory of it. But, but even I remember a little bit. But uh, I rub it in that you're younger. I mean, okay. I, I I think my my brother who was born in 1995. You know, this is like history. Um, and there's there are many people here who grew up with only one person hosting American presidents, only one person getting commitments about uh, our security and Iran and signing agreements with countries in the Gulf. And so I think Anshil has a point here that the very image of someone else uh, hugging the American president and getting these commitments, and maybe there is some kind of big breakthrough with Saudi Arabia in the making. We keep getting hints about it. It could have some kind of an impact uh, on Yair Lapid's, again, standing as a prime minister. Can I just ask you guys, as a resident of Renana who cares about my quality of life, <laughs> what we think is going to happen to Prime Minister Naftali Bennett once he's no longer prime minister, hands it over to Yair Lapid. He can't even be a minister, according to law. Um, will he stay in politics? Will he try to rehabilitate uh, Yamina with uh, with his loyal supporters? Could he possibly even join uh, Lapid in Yeshatid? What, where do we see Bennett heading? Does he even know where he's heading at this moment? First of all, I think... The situation around this house in Ra'anana will get much easier for the relief of everyone in your neighborhood, Alison. But Anshil, the political questions to you? We're hearing very uh, conflicting reports from Bennett's inner circle. Some people are saying that they're still, yeah, Mina is still uh, going to run in the election. And some people are saying that Bennett's taking a t- take, going to take a, t- a time out from politics. I think the second option sounds more likely at this point because Yamina to all purposes, is is no longer a functioning party, if it ever was. Ayelet Shaked, Bennett's old political partner, heard about the announcement. She's in a visit. Uh, she's visiting Morocco now. <laughs> and she heard uh, about the announcement 15 minutes before it was made. Bennett didn't even ask her about it. He, was, he just notified her. That partnership is almost certainly over. Sh- her political career probably ended last, uh, yesterday because she has no way back to the Likud now. She's no way back to, to the right wing. She's now seen as, you know, as the person who went along with this terrible government that sat with the Muslim Brotherhood and all the other things which are being said about this government in the right wing. I don't think she has a way back. And Bennett has certainly hasn't got a way back to the right wing. So I don't see Amina uh, running in this election. I don't see Bennett wanting, after he's spent a year on the lofty heights of you know breathing the rarefied oxygen of, of the prime minister uh you know, flying around the world meeting world i don't see him going back to small party politics ever again certainly not in the in the near future i, I would put money now on bennett sitting out this election i keep hearing from people in my own environment who are let's say center left or center you know moderate right um, that have a sense of great appreciation for Naftali Bennett. And to my surprise, some of them are saying they would vote for him if he ran in the election. These are people who never voted for him, never considered him. I would place them on the range between Benny Gantz and the Labour Party in, in most recent elections. 
I don't know if that sticks, um, but uh, I think there is a sense that he took one for the team in this whole uh, uh, drama that he went into. Um, but maybe it will fade once Yair Lapid is in office and the election is a few months away. Um, and if he doesn't have a new group of voters that are coming to him, I think it's pretty clear he has lost most of his right-wing supporters, um, which would make you know, either joining forces with another party or sitting this one out a logical move for him. What's going to be interesting is, you know, what issues this campaign will be run on, you know, presuming it's run on some kind of issues and not just on personalities and who's going to sit with who or who isn't going to sit with who. Because, you know, we're looking at worldwide inflation. We're going to have an economic crisis in the United States. We've already got tent cities going up in Israel, people protesting the cost of living. And none of the none of the parties really seem to be addressing. You know, we've got teacher strikes. We've got transportation strikes. None of these parties are really talking about what people care about or are concerned about. They're, they're all talking about, you know, saving their own political skin. I think, first of all, I really encourage our listeners to read your story, Alison, on the tent protests that have returned to Israel. A great article this week. But I think it's part of the political crisis we talked about. The question of whether Netanyahu will be able to change the face of Israel by winning a majority for his uh, religious and far-right uh, partners and doing a some very dramatic steps regarding the balance between the authorities in Israel, you know, the, the legal system, the courts, um, and the Knesset, is so dramatically important for, for everything that, um, that people care about in this country that I think it will just once again eclipse all the other issues. And even if in the early months of the election there will be talk about the strikes and the education, and the health system and the issues that are, again, very, very important to our lives, I think in the final stretch we'll once again be in the same situation where it's all about will Netanyahu have a majority or not. And Netanyahu is running, uh, and shall write, kind of against um, the person he would like to run against. He can, he can work hard at painting uh, Lapid as a real leftist and, and, and hit him over the head over and over again. Yeah, but I'm not 100% that Netanyahu really wants to be seen as, uh, to be compared to Lapid. It's, he, uh, he actually tried quite hard over the, in the recent years to kind of belittle Lapid. And now Lapid will be trying to take him on as an equal. And now has, has a bit of a dilemma what to do here. And I think what he'll try to do is he'll try and harm or damage Lapid's standing by proxy, by going after the Arab parties, by going after the joint list and, and Mansour Abbas's uh, UAL and say these are the real people who 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 were running the government in the la- in in this last year who will be running the next government if you don't vote for me and I think this will be a very toxic some will even call it racist election in which the issue of the Jewish character of Israel will be re- will be repeated again and again by Netanyahu and his mouthpieces and it will be very much of trying to stick Lapid Abbas and Tibi together and. Vote for us. Vote for the Jews. Don't vote for the Muslim Brotherhood and their servant. Yeah, repeat. Well, that's something to look forward to. Well, I, but I think also the question of the elections perhaps will be the voting percentage in the Arab society in Israel. Because if it's a low percentage, obviously that makes it easier for Netanyahu to reach a majority. And if the numbers will be high, it uh, pushes him further away. Uh, guys, thank you so much for joining. Alison Kaplan-Sommer and Anshil Pfeffer. And uh, Anshil, we are looking forward to the return of uh, Election Overdose, the podcast that we had in the previous election cycle, um, hosted by uh, you and Dalia Shandlin. I, I'm not sure yet the launch date, but uh, it's coming back. Well, we still don't know yet the launch date of the election or the date of the election. <laughs> so.
Yes, it's going to be back pretty soon. We're for all the addicts, election overdose with Dara Shendin and myself is returning. You can call it over overdose. <laughs> <laughs> election hangover. Right, friends, thank you very much. And up next, a conversation with Uzi Arad, a former Israeli national security advisor and senior Mossad official, on his years working with Benjamin Netanyahu, on his view of the U.S.-Israel relationship under President Joe Biden, and also what are Israel's most important security challenges in 2022. The conversation with Uzi Arad was recorded earlier this week, before we learned that Israel is going to another round of election. Hello, Uzi. It's great to have you here on the podcast. It's a great thing. Never been here before. Uzi, um, this weekend you wrote a fascinating article in Haaretz. It was published in Hebrew. Hopefully it will be translated into English as well. And it dealt with the issue of mental capacity among leaders. And you signed it with a very peculiar uh, a way to describe yourself. You wrote that you were a book distributor to Prime Minister Netanyahu during the years 1997 to 2012. What does that mean? Well, the word distributor was, uh, in other contexts, referred to people who were suppliers of cigars and drinks. Uh, which so, is an <coughs> issue Netanyahu has uh, had some troubles with, uh, with so his legal I, problems. I, I uh, usurped that title because I was the regular supplier of books. But this has to be explained in context. There used to be a time in which uh, if you wanted to uh, get the last books in English... Uh, here in could, Israel. Yes, you couldn't get it here because of the delay, delays and surface mail was expensive. So whoever happened to be either in New York or in London would go to the bookstore. It was a great pleasure to go to the bookstores and purchase a few books. And I made a habit of doing that each time I was either in London or in New York. For 15 years I did that, even when he was out of office, because it was justifiable. And by the way, I was buying myself a copy as well. So you would go abroad every time, go to a good bookstore in London or in New York or maybe in Washington, and when there was a book that seemed interesting to you, you would buy one copy for yourself and one for Him. Benjamin Netanyahu. But, you know, I couldn't uh, waste time. I would only buy books that I knew were good and were well-received. Why waste on uh, second rate? <clears throat> and on topics that interested him, which usually were the books in history, current affairs, biographies, and everything else. Uh, and that became a habit, and I enjoyed it. Who paid for the books? Well, not him. <laughs> so this is probably a pretty big uh, expense. Have you ever no, asked him no. for a return? No, because, you know, books, you know, uh, they don't cost all that much. And only the cumulative thing uh, is uh, looks because, but to bring a couple of books uh, once or twice a month uh, is not expensive. And it was a pleasure. And there were some funny cases in which I told you that I got myself a copy of the book as well. So he used to ask me a few days later, for example, about my impressions from the book because he's read some and he has something to say. But I didn't have the time to read, so I would tell him, listen, you got time, I'm busy. <laughs> Even though he was the prime minister and you were his advisor. So he was not, you know, so sometimes you had incidents like that. Every once in a while, a certain book that I bought was uh, in order to direct his attention to something. I, it doesn't mean I didn't have an agenda. 
and I recall buying uh, the first issue of the book on emotional intelligence so that he would familiarize himself with the concept that would come to haunt him. Um, and, uh, and I can say that um, uh, uh, this is something I view with uh, as a form. I can tell you who I got it from. Uh, the head of Israeli intelligence in the 60s was a gentleman called Yehoshaphat Arkadi. And he told me that he used to have a weekly meeting with the Prime Minister, Ben-Gurion, every Friday at 4 p.m., in which time he would come and tell the Prime Ministers about things that had happened in the intellectual world that do not appear in the cables. And he believed that this was an investment in the Prime Minister's intellectual I viewed it the same way. And, uh, you know, people who have listened to our conversation up until this point uh, might uh, think of you as someone who is very close to the previous prime minister, you know, 15 years. This is, sounds more than a professional interaction. This is uh, a bit of a friendship, the way you describe it. And that is not the case today. I think he would consider you one of his sharpest critics today. And maybe what you told me before we started the recording about the last book you bought him will explain why. Well, it is true that uh, I'm now critical of many things that have happened here, but you should realize that when I was his assistant, I was the first cr to criticize him to his face. People don't understand. People think that criticism means only if it is said in public. Quite the contrary. I would often argue with him, sometimes raise my voice on him. I use my best arguments. For example, I'm two years older than him. So everyone told me, well, I pulled age. I told him, you listen to me. You may be my prime minister, but I've got two years. I'm older than you, so you listen. We had this kind of friendly uh, discussion. Sometimes it was becoming difficult because we started to argue on the way foreign policy is conducted, not on substance, but on procedures. And that turned into a, a serious uh, disagreement which led to my departure as expected, but I did not go out publicly criticizing his ways of doing policy only years after, uh, in about 2016, when the scandal of corruption in the defense sector erupted, and I realized that he was involved. You're talking about what in Israel we call the submarine affair, which is today supposed to be investigated by a uh, National Committee of Inquiry, and we'll touch on it later. You did tell me that before uh, departing from uh, Netanyahu's office, and you had worked with him for 15 years, the last book you purchased for him was called Foreign Policy Mistakes. Yes, so there was no uh, hidden agenda there, but it conveys the spirit that I uh, regarded his reading as a way of making him more sensitive uh, to the possibility of mistakes. So when you have a good book about foreign policy mistakes, it's good to learn from it. Did he? Apparently not. But the mistakes are different, and his are his own. When you look at the government that has been in power here in Israel for a year now, uh, what we call the change government led by Naftali Bennett and uh, Foreign Minister Yair Lapid, and you compare its foreign policy to what we saw under Netanyahu, who was in power for 15 years two uh, different uh, periods of time, but you know, three years and then another 12. How do you compare their foreign policy to his? Well, when he was in office, he was clearly the elder statesman in the last few years. He was in command of so many issues because he had a long service and he accumulated a lot of knowledge which helped him perform. Uh, this group 
of uh, leaders are all, I'm sorry to say, novices. And it shows. It certainly shows because, uh, you know, experienced people make experienced mistakes. Novices make uh, different type of mistakes, some of them completely silly. Like what? Oh, many of the mishaps that you have read about, including the now the the fact that the Prime Minister's office is getting uh, disorganized completely, that's a manifestation of a certain inability to understand how to staff, who to staff with, and how to get your staff working effectively for you. So we have a government which is not led by formidable opposition leaders, but by newcomers, each with a very limited uh, ministerial experience. Secondly, some of the habits of our civil service today uh, leave much to be desired. And uh, that's why in so many areas, uh, they also are incapable of affecting the necessary change. Because inevitably, you can see that they've inherited, uh, say... When you say they, you mean Bennett and Lapid? Yes, the whole group. I mean, mm-hmm. we have now uh, sort of uh, five party leaders Uh, heads of the coalition, but each and one of them is a novice in his own field. Look at who is our mi- Minister of Health. He's not exactly cast as a, as a great expert on health matters. And uh, Minister of Transportation, she has different agendas. And our Prime Minister, our current Prime Minister, I think that he was surprised himself that he got the job. So uh, they are all inexperienced people. At the command of ministries that have uh, been uh, getting older and less effective and not modernized and so forth, and therefore their executive capacity is limited. So that's why I think that their record uh, is not one of uh, tremendous successes. And if you look at the totality of things, Netanyahu's genius all those years was to make sure that his adversaries are weak. And if they are not weak, he can split them. That is the classical gambit. Be strong and make your adversary very weak. And they are weak. Politically. Politically, and, but even in terms of competence. Uh, when it comes to competence in certain areas, of course, Netanyahu is certainly stronger. Trouble was that in the last few years, uh, his attention was completely dominated by his own personal concerns. But this does not deprive him of being so much more experienced. And that is something that uh, is uh, noticeable. Uzi, I want to shift a bit to uh, an upcoming event that's uh, getting a lot of attention, which is President Biden's visit to Israel. Look, I have a story about Biden. When, I've, when I used to go with Netanyahu and our entourage uh, into the White House and everybody was walking outside on the lawn, President Netanyahu ahead, And the rest of us behind every once in a while uh, Joe Biden who was also behind would come behind my back put his long arm uh, he's much taller than I am uh, around me and whisper in my ear very confidentially Uzi you better remember I'm your best fucking friend here <laughs> when you look today at the state of the US Israel relationship uh, a subject that you worked on quite a lot in your different roles and What's the most important issue to pay attention to? Well, they, they have clearly an agenda. Let me strike a note that I've had the pleasure of knowing uh, Senator Biden many, many years. And I know when he was younger and more dynamic 
and he was always a very likable person and gracious and friendly to Israel. So that is a friendly president who's coming to Israel. The, the agenda for his trip first got to do also with a visit to the Gulf, to Saudi Arabia. And uh, possibly uh, the two countries have to discuss a certain, a few issues that they have been discussing in the last few months, them or their people. One of which is uh, would be when it comes to Israel, it would probably try to promote further integration of Israel into the uh, Gulf countries and primarily Saudi Arabia, so as possibly to help in presenting a certain kind of a block, but not an alliance. That is not a treaty nor an alliance. It is just, say, a coalition better organized. He would do that. He would have to talk with us on Iran because we are looking at a very confusing situation, a very delicate situation with Iran, whether if there would be an agreement, it's one thing. If there wouldn't be, it's another thing. But at the same time, we have to work in concert for both eventualities so as to really pursue the goal that we share, and that is that Iran would not have nuclear weapons. How to do that, we have to discuss. Maybe there would be a division of labor between us uh, and so forth. So that's another item on the agenda. I think that he would raise the Palestinian issue. Really? I think he would. Because the, the discourse here and in Washington has been that America doesn't really care about that issue anymore. They have so many larger problems. Ukraine, China, you mentioned Saudi Arabia and Iran. Where... Is there even room for the Israeli-Palestinian problem in this kind of uh, agenda? There would be some symbolic expression to that. I don't know how, but they would find a way to remind uh, Israeli leaders that uh, the United States still believes that uh, a settlement is required, that its contours should be a two-state solution, and that policies of Israeli annexation Uh, would not be helpful. And the argument would probably be made that whatever is the situation, there is much that should be done not to escalate and to the extent that there are friction like the kind we have now, not only on the West Bank or with Gaza, but also with the Israeli Arabs. These, they are Palestinians too. So we need to move from this kind of very, very confrontational situation into a situation that would quiet the atmosphere in order that it would not project on other areas which are ex- equally explosive. I see what you mean. Uh, you worked with uh, the Obama administration at uh, your time as the National Security Advisor. Joe Biden was then Vice President. Do you think he's happy that when he comes to Israel next month, most chances are, it's not uh, a given, but most chances are that ben- Benjamin Netanyahu will not be the Prime Minister receiving him at Ben-Gurion Airport? Yeah, of course he is. Not, you know, I think that they got along. By, Biden, as, Biden and Bibi. Bibi. You know, even in the 80s, they knew each other. They were the same age and they had so many time together. And again, Biden is such, a, such a, an outgoing personality. But over the years, the differences on policy have emerged. And remember, Bibi had a very combative attitude towards Obama, whom Biden served as vice president. Uh, we all remember the very embarrassing incident that happened when Biden was here as 
vice president when the same day Israel announced new construction, which was terrible mishap on our part, but he was furious with that. And, uh, and over the years, I think that uh, relation soured. So he must be relieved by the fact that it is not Netanyahu. But, uh, and also the fact that Netanyahu was so partisan when it came to American politics in a way that uh, I think was wrong. But the effect was to be anti-democratic. Uh, Uzi, we have a few more minutes left. I want to talk about the headlines you made here in Israel last week, and we covered it at Haaretz, when you testified at what I think is uh, quite a bizarre uh, trial uh, happening not far from our headquarters in, uh, in the Tel Aviv uh, court. Netanyahu, your uh, former boss, has uh, sued for defamation Ehud Olmert, his predecessor as prime minister, after Olmert uh, made a comment about Netanyahu's uh, mental health. And you were invited to testify about some episodes that you were uh, a witness to. What did it feel like to sit in a courtroom with one prime minister and his family versus the other prime minister and being asked questions about the mental health of a man you worked with for uh, many years? Well, you know, he was there with his wife and boy. I wouldn't call him a boy. It's his okay. son, but he's a 30-year-old man by now, I think. Yes. But all three were given the same characterization. That is to say that they are mentally ill and they should be hospitalized. There was no difference said. I think that most people have, uh, have been exposed to stories about Netanyahu's spouse, whereas as far as he himself is concerned, I don't think that anybody at any point did refer to a problem of... Uh, of uh, you know but look at the terms used the term was having a mental disorder a mental illness now the truth of the matter is that there have been studies in america and england that many american presidents and many uh, british prime ministers did suffer from all kind of mental disturbances some of which were normal and were treated Even the greatest leader of all, uh, Winston Churchill, uh, suffered, and he recognized that because he literally suffered from profound depression, which he called my black dog days. And he also had a certain proclivity to drink. And in his later years, there was some dementia, which wasn't. So that's normal. It happens. It's not his fault. The interesting thing is that he recognized that Churchill Churchill and that it and it was handled as best as one could do with the medical treatment and others of the time so as long as you do that and inevitably we see the results in spite of these problems he was the greatest leader of them all and Netanyahu so the question is always specific because in Netanyahu's he would assume that that uh, that Churchill should be his role model, but he does not suffer from the same afflictions. And what he suffers from, if there is anything, resembles more, say, the profile of Nixon. That is to say, a man who is very paranoid, who thinks everybody's after him, who composes enemy lists, who thinks that the press is terrible against him, you know, has also something severe to say about Jews. And that is what ruined... 
Nixon, we know about Jews, but what are you referring to here with Netanyahu? American Jews? No, 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 no. I'm not referring to that. This is just reference to... To Nixon himself. To Nixon okay. himself. Okay. Um, I don't want to make any jokes about that. You know, they're all never completely understood. Okay. Uh, but look at what he did to Nixon. Nixon uh, was a man who was twice vice president, then had the first term, had tremendous foreign policy successes, the opening to China. He sorted out, you know, the, uh, later the uh, Paris Agreement on Vietnam. But even internally, in, in that election, in which you had the Watergate... 72. Effect, he won 49 states. So his political support in America was huge, much more than Netanyahu, who gets only 25% of the vote for himself. And yet, with all this, once that cancer started to work in the presidency because of these things and then the cover-up that come up and his decline was very rapid. Some of people think that Netanyahu has the same habits. He suspects everybody's against him. He blames everybody. He demonizes everybody. And that may, may bring about his own difficulties. So I don't know. The jury's still out. He still can resurface. But um, many of the problems in his head were caused by such personality traits, which, again, a discussion by experts and non-experts um, should be considered legitimate. At this very moment, look at the discussion that has taken place in Britain. Boris Johnson misbehaved during the corona, like, you know, but suddenly there is a discussion about his mental status because of his demeanor, because of his, they say, buffoon attitude, a psychologist could tell you where this comes from. So I think that the lesson that we have from episodes in most democratic countries is that the role of the leaders is so crucial and the responsibilities that they're given are so critical, such as including war and peace, that the public should know what is the mental and medical record of the people they are about to vote for. Interesting uh, idea. Uzi, one final last question, almost out of time. You mentioned working with uh, all the American presidents since uh, Reagan. Um, who do you think really was the best president for Israel from all of that group? You know, listen, my American friends including in the intelligence community, every once in a while used to ask me at the time, among candidates, you know, they would come... Who would be better for Israel? Yeah, and what was my standard response? You choose the man or woman who would be best for America. If he's best for America, he's also best for us. In That's a diplomatic answer, but I think there is a, a grain of truth in that. Uh, Uzi Arad, thank you very much for joining us today. It was a fascinating thank conversation. You. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much to Shani Aviram, our producer, and to you listeners. We'll be back soon with another episode. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>